So we're reading this morning from Acts chapter 17, and I'm starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting uh, for Silas and Timothy uh, uh, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked round and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Um, It's great to be here um, with you at Cairns Road. We were back in Bristol two years ago on home assignment and uh, we uh, shared a Saturday afternoon with you. Many of you look familiar, um, but the first time in this particular particular building. So uh, it is good to be with you. Before before we go into look uh, into Acts, um, I'm tempted to move down, but then people might not be able to see me. yeah, you, you sh- well, you should move up. I mean, you really should move up. Some of you seem a long way away. But, uh, okay, I'll stay here so you can see me. On your seats, you will have um, 
some various bits of literature put out there. It's not on every seat by any means, but certainly in every row. There is a magazine, a BMS magazine called Engage. Um, there's a little notice uh, with our website on, BMS's website on, um, and... Uh, um, Yes, and a prayer card as well. There are a few prayer cards around. Again, if you would like one, you're welcome to take whatever's there. But if you, uh, if you do want one of our more uh, recent, if you want another prayer card, you're welcome to have it. We do, we do have some more. Um, the Engage magazine has got a number of articles in it. But if you turn the page, we're particularly pleased because uh, if you open, our front pa- open the front page and inside the front cover, you'll see uh, our picture and uh, a little article called Making Learning Fun, which explains a bit more of some of Cynthia's work um, with early childhood education in Nepal. So there's a number of things in there. And for those of you that I hope are staying for lunch, there'll be an opportunity for us to share a bit more in detail about uh, the specifics of the work that we're engaged with. Um, and we've been in Nepal for eight years now, so it's our fourth home assignment. And, um, and from now on, we're probably going to be coming back every year. Um, we have two things to thank for that. Um, one is that our kids are getting older, and it's getting more difficult to take them out of school uh, and getting them to homeschool when they're, um, Justin's going to start his GCSE courses in August. Um, but the other one is the government changed the tax laws, which means we can't actually stay in the UK for that long any one time. We can't stay in the UK for more than 90 days in any one year without having to pay tax here. And so um, we want to try and avoid that if we can, so we're going to do more... Uh, more um, more short and sweeter home assignments. Okay. Um, You have been looking at the book of Acts over recent weeks, and um, in correspondence with your leaders, I I was hoping, I was really hoping that I would be able to preach uh, and and, and speak from this subject, this this topic today. Because when uh, Andy said, last time he was here two weeks ago, Acts 16, I thought, oh great, Acts 17. And then I heard last week you were up in Acts 18 or 19. I thought, oh no, they've done Athens already. Um, but uh, I think there's been a bit of a gap. I hope you haven't heard about Athens already. You haven't? That's great. So um, whatever. And I'm going to bring a slightly different twist to it today because I'm going to come at it very much from our experience in Nepal. Um, I don't know how you read the passage. It's probably one that you have looked at before. Um, but it's, but it is, it's, 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 a, it's a long way culturally from the Western society. And we are much closer to it in Nepal. And I hope that as we unpick some of it today, we'll be able to make those cultural, uh, link those cultural bridges together. So, I don't know how you feel about what the New Testament church looks like in a number of weeks that you've been looking at Acts. See, a lot of us have a very romantic idea of what the New Testament church was like. And part of us would love to be back there in the New Testament. And we hear that, we pray that, that we'd love to be a New Testament church back in those New Testaments. Because they were exciting times. The church was growing daily. Numbers were being added to them. But with that growth came challenges and problems of their own. And if we doubt that, then we just need to start unpicking some of Paul's letters to the churches um, written probably around about the same time as what are some of these, these, these events going on. But, you know, we start to unpick particularly letters like Corinthians. You think these guys really had some problems. They were growing and it was an exciting place to be, but they had some real issues to deal with. Um, and so on for many of the other places that Paul was writing to. So not without its problems. And I suppose Nepal has been described as being one of the places on the earth today where we are, it is closest 
to a New Testament church, if you like. The church is just over 60 years old. Before 1951, 1952, there were virtually no Christians and no church in Nepal. How many are there today? We're not really very sure. There was a census last year, and um, there was a, religious, uh, a religion question. There was a religion box on the form. I think it came back at about 1% of the population declared themselves Christian, but a lot of people feel that's unrepresentative, because if you can imagine what will happen, if you go to a Christian household, the head of the household might declare himself, because the head of the household, unfortunately, is a, is a man, um, the head of the household might declare himself as a Christian, which means all the rest of his household then get, gets ticked as a Christian. But if you are a Christian and the head of your household is not, uh, is not a Christian, is a Hindu or a Buddhist, then that person would, and the likelihood is then that a lot of those people would be, be missed. So the census is, is quite a misrepresentative way of counting. Um, other surveys have shown. So somewhere at 2-3% of the population, and a population of 30 million, would now declare themselves to be Christian. But although that number is quite small, because the time frame that we're looking at is, so small, is also so short, that in percentage terms, Nepal reports probably the highest church growth rate in the world. And that was, uh, there was something that was going around our emails a few months ago. Um, Nepali colleagues were sharing it with us. I don't know whether it was Operation World or whoever it was, but saying church growth rate, the highest in the world in Nepal. And, of course, that's exactly the kind of figure that makes the, uh, the Hindu nationalists very uncomfortable. And um, we've seen some recent examples of how that's playing out. We've been part of, so those are the numbers, that's the background, that's the setting, if you like. It's a young and it's a fast-growing church. But actually, how does that look in reality? Well, it's been our pleasure to be part of a local congregation in Nepal, in Kathmandu, just a few hundred yards from where we live, um, for the last eight years. And they were literally next door to us when we first moved there. They moved a little bit further down the hill into another rented building um, about four or five years ago. And we've been part of Bishram for the last eight years. And within that, we get a microcosm of what's going on. All the issues that we read about and that we hear other people talk about, we can see being played out in our local congregation, people who are dealing with the effects of migration on their marriages and on their families, the number, the thousands of young and working-age Nepali men that are working overseas. Some of you may have picked up, um, when this World Cup is over, um, where's the next one going to be? The one after, the one, the one in 2018. Where's the next World Cup? Russia. And the one after that will be in... Qatar. And some of you may have picked up some of the, the, the noise that's going on about that, whether it, it is possible to play at 50 plus degrees in the desert and a can you air condition a stadium. I mean, that seems incredible to me that you can air condition a stadium. Um, if they're going to do that, a lot of the construction work, Nepal, Qatar does not have any construction workers or enough people to be able to be construction workers. Where are they coming from? They're coming from places in South Asia. They're coming from Nepal and Bangladesh and India in their thousands. And every week, um, bodies come back from Qatar of young, fit men who've had heart attacks uh, or been injured in industrial accidents 
um, because they're not being, they're being exploited. They're being exploited to, to a huge extent. And those kinds of things are going on in our churches. Those are families. These aren't just Hindu and Buddhist families. These are, Hindu, these are also Christian families who are having to deal with that in their own immediate family or their wider family. So we get a microcosm of all of that being part of our church um, and, uh, and so on. But we want to, I want to look at this morning at a couple of stories. We read, from Athens, we read the story of Athens, but there's a prelude to Athens a little bit before. There's a little bit, there's a little bit of introduction of, Thessalonica, of the story of Thessalonica. We're not going to read it. But basically, when they were in Thessalonica, there was a bit of a mob thing going on. And people did not, uh, the people objected to what Paul and Silas were doing. And so they, they rented a mob to come and get rid of these people and um, took them out. And the reason I want to just highlight to this, to you, the, this morning is that just a, a, the week before we left Kathmandu, so we've been in the country for two weeks, and uh, about three weeks ago, there was a story that came round to say that um, a number of Christian pastors and people who were being baptised had been arrested in Kathmandu. And I don't know, I think Cynthia might have sent a, a story round, and I don't know if you, you're on that distribution list, but the story, but something that initially was quite disturbing because pastors and Christians were arrested um, and imprisoned for their faith pre-1990. But since democracy, things have been much more open. And as the story unfolded, what we discovered had happened, and it was actually the, um, the church affected, was the, the church that our, my boss in, in, in Kathmandu is a member of. She's a senior Nepali uh, Christian lady, and she's a, she's a member of that, a leader in that church. And what had happened was as they had been attempting to baptize a number of people by the river, okay, so we don't, they don't have baptistries, I guess your baptistry is just here, yeah? Well, the baptistry in Nepal is the local river, the local stream, and they've been out somewhere on the valley edge trying to baptise about 40 people, and, uh, and a mob had descended upon them. And the mob was orchestrated by one of the families of one of the, uh, the candidates. And they were all of all of age, all of over 18, um, but this guy's family were objecting to him being baptised. And so they, uh, they, this mob descended and they were trying to disrupt. So, of course, then the police got involved. And what happened was, in fact, it happened, was that the police had taken the leaders and some of the candidates, presumably the guy from whose family had objected, and taken them into custody for their own protection for a couple of days. Uh, so, actually, um, things were not as disturbing. But in the response to that, the Christian leaders in Kathmandu were then uh, coming together and saying, well, okay, how the... And we suspect that with the, the new government in India, we might well see, which is a, is a more nationalist and Hindu, Hindu fundamentalist uh, uh, government, that will have an effect on what happens in Nepal. Um, so people are watching and praying carefully. But if for nothing else, it's getting all the Christian leaders in the room together praying and working out how they're going to address that together. So I was very, I thought I would bring that story to you because, you know, it's a very, it's still going on and conversion and people changing their faith is still a very real and live issue in many parts of the world um, where people object and so on. It's a very, very uh, real issue. But let's focus on our second story from Acts, uh, from verse 16 onwards, the story of Paul in Athens. For a missionary, this is a really interesting encounter, and I've had great fun unpacking some of this as I've read around it in the last few days. So, could I have a first slide, please? As Cynthia said, um, we too are surrounded by idols. 
And um, this is an idol of a temple, a, a, a temple just outside of Kathmandu that appears on our 10 rupee note. Um, so we, uh, we brought some money with us. Um, this is the 10 rupee note. It's worth about six or seven pence. Okay? You probably get a cup of tea for uh, 10 rupees these days. I don't know, you probably paid about two or three when you, two rupees, yeah, well, it's ten. We've got bad inflation in the pile. And uh, so, you know, we are surrounded by idols, and every street corner that we go to, we see the idols. So just as Paul was distressed by the sight of idols, we too are surrounded by the idols of the, in the city. We see them at home. We even have them at home because we share our house with a Nepali family. We live on the ground floor. Our landlord and landlady live upstairs. And on the the next floor up, they have like a half story above us. So two two complete stories and then a, a half story above. And in that half story above is a little room that the landlady will go and conduct her worship in. It depends very much on uh, how people's houses. They will either have a shrine in the kitchen or a little shrine that's just off the kitchen or somewhere. But there is a little room there that we've never entered, we've never wanted to enter, but we know it's up there, uh, up on the roof. How do we feel about them? Are we distressed? Are we frightened? What are those idols? What, in fact, are they? Do they have power over us? Are they uh, a way of opening up demonic powers? Or are they, in fact, nothing? Just the work of human hands with no power at all to change anything? I believe if we search the scriptures, we'll be able to conclude that they are both of those things. And whatever they are, but whatever they are, they distort the image of God in us. In Greek culture, they'd elevated the human spirit and and, uh, body to such an extent that they'd lost sight of the very God in whose image those humans were made. But how does Paul engage with the idols around him? Well, we will, sorry, we'll look at that in a moment. But in Nepal, it's a real issue today. What happens when someone becomes a Christian from a Hindu background? So many of the cultural and family celebrations involve worship to a Hindu deity. So what extent should Christians take part in those? Is it possible to separate the religious from the cultural? To say this is Nepali culture, this is Hindu faith. And in the South Asian context, it's very difficult to be able to put a line between them. Not always easy to do that. Well, what would happen when young Christians uh, might they, they stand at the risk of offending their families and breaking all their wider family relationships by not taking part? For us, 1 Corinthians 8 is a real test case. Paul writes to the believers there about whether or not they should eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, you probably haven't had to deal with that too much in Bristol. But Nepali Christians and we ourselves have to deal with that pretty much all the time. Um, we were invited to a, uh, a celebration. It was a, um, I think, yes, it's called the Shraddha celebration. It's an anniversary of somebody's death. So some of the family we knew, they were having a feast a year after her father had died. And so we went to the feast. There was, no, there was nothing going on at the temple. Um, we know. But we didn't ask too many questions about what had happened to the food. Okay, what, what had the food had been prepared and it was laid out. We knew that a proportion of it, some of it, would have been offered 
to a deity. But we didn't ask any questions about what had been offered and what had gone on. We came in to share the feast. But maybe as foreigners we can get away with that. What about our national believers? So these are real issues that they're having to deal with. But in, when Paul writes to the, letter, to the church in Corinth, his concern is mainly pastoral. Mainly pastoral that one's behavior, our behavior, whatever we do, should not lead somebody else to, into error, should not damage their relationship with God in any way. Um, and that is his primary driving concern. So, the second point. I have the next slide back up to the... Where was Paul? Where was Paul in Athens? Well, he was in the synagogue in verse 17, but he was also in the marketplace. So he was where all the religious people hang out, and he was where everybody else was, whoever happened to be there. I love that phrase, whoever happened to be there in the marketplace. What was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus, the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And as a consequence, he gets dragged before the council to explain his ideas. And on one level, this was because they were curious. We're told that they like to sit around and talk and discuss, um, as many of us do. And, but there's an undertone to that. It's not just curiosity. There's also the accusation that he has bringing foreign gods into the city. So it's more than a cosy chat it's more like an inquiry, a public inquiry before the council. Well, the church in Nepal is definitely a minority. Like I said, maybe 2 or 3% estimates vary. And one of the characteristics of a minority in any society is they can become inward-looking and defensive. But Paul's example shows us what Nepali Christians, for you and I, that we belong in the marketplace as well as the religious places. So this is a picture of Sita Gurung, and she's my boss in, um, in Kathmandu. And uh, Sita is a well-known, well-respected leader in the Nepali church. She's unusual in two respects. Uh, first is that she's a woman, and the second is that she's unmarried. Uh, so from Nepali cultural points of view, that's, that's quite unusual to be such a senior leader. And Sita has had for a number of years a vision for getting the Nepali Christians to make the connection between their faith and their work. And we fall into that dichotomy as well. We divide our lives into different segments. We have what we do in the sacred sphere and what we do in the so-called secular sphere. And that way of thinking so that, and we, get, we, we can be tricked into thinking that God is more concerned about what we do on a Sunday and our religious meetings than he's concerned with our nine-to-five routine, the kind of nine-to-five routine that Peter's just, uh, just, just coming, to, coming to an end. Um, but that is also a sacred space. If God is Lord, then he is God of everything that we do and wherever we are. And that call to the marketplace. So Sita has had this vision, and I was very, when I joined INF four years ago, we, um, that was one of the things that really attracted me to being in that, in that new role and having an opportunity to work with CETA as she's developed different um, materials, workshops, and so on to engage young Christians with that. And uh, she has a, a real vision that young Christians will get into the marketplace. 
get into the marketplace where people are and use the gifts and the talents that they've got. They're needed in the mission organisations, they're needed in the church, but they're needed in wider society as well. And as the numbers grow, there's more of them around um, to, to get out there. The next picture is a friend called Tree. Tree Ratner works for Campus Crusade in, uh, based in Kathmandu. And Tree had the opportunity a few years ago to study in the Philippines. He came back with his wife, and they are now, uh, they're currently in, in transition from moving out of uh, Campus Crusade. But Tree's vision is very much to engage those who are in government service, Christians who are working in the civil service, and to get new young Christians into the civil service. You see, it's all very well. People complain about the civil service and government service in the PAL, just as they do here. Okay? The complaints that they make might be different, because corruption is so much more of an issue there than it is here, but it's everywhere. It's human and sinful nature. And it's all very well to complain about it being an unholy place and wanting, to, and wanting it to be different. But if we really believe that, Somebody's got to be prepared to go there and be subversive from the inside. And so, Chris, so Tree is um, working with a group of Christian leaders who are in government service, both discipling and walking with them as they work and encouraging the next generation to get in and, um, and work it out. And I suppose the question to you is your marketplace. Where is your marketplace? Where are you where people are just happening to be there. Everyone has one, and it doesn't apply to those who are in nine-to-five jobs as well. Every, each, each one of us has a marketplace where we engage with the people who happen to be there, and God's calling is on that as well. The next slide, please. Oh, sorry. sorry just, yeah, the whole slide. So, third point. When giving our message, one size does not fit all. One-size-fits-alls become, uh, I don't know, a mantra of the common age. And actually, it works sometimes, but often it doesn't. And it doesn't work when we're presenting the gospel, as Paul shows. Surely we'd say, well, the gospel message is universal, it's for everyone, and it's for everywhere. Yes, it is. But let's look at his presentation and how he presented it to the Greeks in Athens. His engagement with them was forthright, but it was polite. He adopts a very different strategy for his evangelistic engagement. The kinds of phrases, the kinds of things that he's em emphasizing, God, the living creator of heaven and earth. The providence of God in giving us all that we need, including the very air we breathe. He argues that that's proof of God's longing for people to seek him. God's been patient and tolerant of ignorance in the past, but now has the time come for them to replace what is hopelessly inadequate of these idols of representing the divine. They're hopelessly inadequate, he says in verse 29. Um, I'm calling them to the living God. If we were to compare Paul's account to believers... Remember, he's in Athens, he's obviously talking to people who aren't. When he talks to people in Rome, the church in Rome, chapter 1, his language is much harsher and a very different vocabulary. 
There he's speaking of rebellion, the rebellion of mankind, the wickedness of idolatry, it being the result of perverted thinking, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And as a consequence of all of that, the wrath of God is coming. But all of those words are addressed to the church. When he addresses the Greeks in Athens, instead of rebellion, we have ignorance. Instead of wickedness, we have the worthlessness of the idols. Instead of perverted thinking, we have something that he says doesn't really make sense if you stop to think about it for rebellion. And he takes care not to blaspheme the idol. And in fact, when you come to look at Ephesus, if that's next week or the week after, one of the defenses that's given, that piece of, the, the, that's given is that Paul and those with him have not blasphemed our idol. But he does insist on the reality of judgment in 30 and 31. He doesn't skip the point. Judgment is coming because Jesus has been revealed. So Paul takes great care to present the message differently. Does he change the content of the, mis- the, the message? Well, I think he's been pretty good at doing his homework, actually. Um, because not only has he wandered around and noticed the, uh, the altar to an unknown God, he's got his eyes open and he's looking around to see what, people, uh, what it's like there, but he's also quoting from poetry in verse 29, and 20, 28 and 29, using that poetry to support his argument. He's made an effort to see where the culture touches and how he can use that to present the gospel in the way that will be easier for them to understand, looking for those touch points in their religious and cultural background. Well, in Nepal, we, Christianity, is often perceived as a foreign religion, and it's a stumbling block to many. Just as Paul was accused of bringing the foreign gods into Athens, so a lot of Nepalis will look at this and say, that is a Western religion, that is an American religion, it is a European religion. The travesty, of course, being that it was founded by a man who was Asian. And, uh, and that's, but that's the perception. Nepali Christians are going to have to work very hard at how they contextualize their message. Let's look at a couple more pictures. The first is of a wedding. This is the wedding of our landlord's uh, daughter, Sumitra, on the right, and her husband, Birod. And although they were officially married about 18 months ago, 18 months, two years ago, they celebrated their, their boj, their feast, um, uh, back in Kathmandu, back in October. It coincided with my parents' visit from Bristol, which was great, so we were all invited. All six of us were invited. We were the only foreigners at the, uh, the event, and we celebrated um, their wedding. But you can see that she's wearing a red and gold uh, sari, red the color of celebration in Nepal and Nepali culture, and she's wearing the red tikka powder because she has received a blessing. They both received blessing from the priest, and from other members of their family. So it hasn't gone on by one person. There's somebody, the priest will have given them a blessing, and then various other subsequent family members will have given them blessings like that. Compare it to the next slide of a Christian wedding of um, a couple, a young couple in our church. Cynthia worked with um, 
Oh, well, my name's, mine's gone blank as to her name for a moment. But Cynthia, she was one of Cynthia's uh, Sunday school teachers or children's workers, and well, they worked together for a while, and her, and her young husband, and they've, um, they've now moved out to East Nepal to be um, there. And you see that she is wearing white, um, which is the Christian color. Well, I wonder, I wonder how many of your parents' grandparents were married in white? Because I think certainly in my family, if you go back to my grandparents' generation, they weren't. They just wore a nice dress. Okay. So, is it Christian to wear white to a wedding? Interesting question, isn't it? Because white in a Hindu culture is the sign of mourning. Okay. So after somebody dies in your family, you will wear white for a period of time. Men often for up to a year afterwards. So what does a Hindu onlooker see when they see this couple? Starting out on years of what we pray will be married happiness for many years, and she's wearing the color of mourning. What kind of songs do they sing? Do they sing translated Matt Redmond songs? We sang Matt Redmond, there's nothing wrong with Matt Redmond, but... Or do they sing Nepali songs or lyrics that have taken a Nepali folk tune, an indigenous tune, and written their own lyrics? And we have both. But again, just thinking, what kind of instruments? Electric guitars or the muddle, which is the traditional drum? And um, it's not an either-or. But how do we bridge that cultural gap? Can we write poems that emulate the Bhagavad Gita in order to tell the gospel story. There's an interesting guy in our church who's um, quite well educated and who's studied a lot of the Hindu scriptures before he became a Christian. And every now and again, he will recite poetry in the service. And um, he does so in a way that will tell the story. So he'll tell the story of creation, tell the story of different, um, different stories in the Bible, but using an idiom, using a, a genre of literature that will be very familiar to those who, don't, who, who, uh, who study the Hindu scriptures themselves. Um, and uh, I would love to get him published sometime and uh, made more widely available because it's a very interesting way of doing it. So, as culture continues to change in Britain, how are we going to present the gospel in a way that's relevant? Are you doing your homework to understand the culture and discovering where those touch points are? And uh, I suppose I'll offer this as an observation in general, not just to this church, but to the churches that we visit and around. We see less people on a Sunday than maybe we used to. But we also hear about a large number of people who come to the church during midweek for preschool, for after-school clubs, for children's work, and so on. The pattern is changing. So if you were to count up the number of people coming through the church of a week, it may even be going up. But they're not coming on Sunday. And so how do, does church respond to that in this day and age? Where are those touch points with our culture. And my last point. Paul gives them a comprehensive gospel message. Let's have a quote from John Stott. 
I'll read out the full bit, but you've only got the middle bit there. This is John Stott's commentary, or a commentary, on Acts 17, this sermon and message to uh, the church in Athens. It's the comprehensiveness of Paul's message that is impressive. He proclaimed God in his fullness as creator, sustainer, ruler, father, and judge. And all of this is part of the gospel, or at least the necessary uh, progolomena to the gospel. Many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. They are looking for an integrated worldview that makes sense of all their experience. We learn from Paul that we cannot preach the gospel without uh, gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God, or the cross without creation, or salvation without judgment, or vice versa. Today's world needs a bigger gospel. The full scripture, what Paul later calls in Ephesus, was the entire plan of God, Acts 20. Is your gospel big enough? Or is your gospel about getting saved from your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die? And that's not wrong. But the entire gospel is bigger than that. It's a story that runs from creation to new creation. Do people around us see the gospel as trivial? Or does it impact everything that we do in the world? Christians in Nepal might be small in number. But my prayer is that as the church grows that their impact on society will be far bigger than their numbers suggest. Missions in Nepal have played a huge part in nation building over the years. It's amazing who you bump into now in government and positions of authority, who've been educated at a mission school, who've been treated in a mission hospital, or who grew up in an area where somebody from the missions built a hydropower station so that they could have lights on to study in the evening. The challenge for the Nepali church is to take that bigger gospel to their nation and it's the challenge that we have to take it to this nation as well. May God bless you in that. Amen. Um, Got a couple of minutes before the young people come back. They're going to come back so we can pray for the Chadwells together. Um, When they come in, Debs, if we could start the that song, but um, 